Elora Darren must survive. She must fulfill her destiny and bring about the downfall of Queen Babmorda, whose powers are growing like an evil plague. Unless she is stopped, Babmorda will control the lives of your village, your children, everyone. All creatures of good heart need your help, Willow. The choice is yours. Welcome to Now Playing, the movie review podcast. Welcome back, boys. You deserve medals. Yeah, medals. Yeah. <laughs> Today, we are reviewing Willow. You are great. Hosted by Arnie. Don't go near him. He's dangerous. Jacob. I am a powerful sorcerer. I'll turn you to stone. And Stuart. The safety of this village depends upon you. These podcasts contain detailed plot spoilers and harsh language. Listener discretion is advised. That's a bad idea. Very bad. Dangerous out there. You stay here alone. We're going. Today we're discussing Willow, starring Val Kilmer, Joanne Wally, Warwick Davis, Billy Barty, Gene Marsh, directed by Ron Howard. Hello, everybody. We have arrived. You are safe. This is Arnie, co-host of Now Playing. I whip my hair back and forth. I whip my hair back and forth. I whip my hair. Oh, wrong Willow. Steward in LA. This is Jacob. Want to breed? And everyone, we have arrived with a bonus podcast. How could we not? Today is the day that silver and platinum donors were supposed to hear our review of The Hobbit, The Battle of the Five Armies, but it just came out yesterday, so we need a little more time to edit. But what about a Lord of the Rings movie that stars a leprechaun? That <laughs> seems like a good movie, so we're doing it for free for everyone. For those who have donated silver or platinum, take this as a stopgap until we get you that final review in just a few days. For everyone else, let this serve as a reminder, our donation drive is actually coming to an end, and we need your help to keep now playing on the air. Our 2014 donation drive, it's almost done. We have done 16 bonus reviews. And when you donate, you can donate $15 to hear the six reviews of the live-action Lord of the Rings films. You can donate $15 to hear the seven reviews of the Warwick Davis starring Leprechaun horror films. Or you can donate... $30, get all 13 of those, plus three exclusive reviews, the Hobbit animated series reviews. And it's your donations that pay for the shows we do every Tuesday, from Big Hero 6 to Ocean's Eleven to Maniac to Batman to Nolan to all the Stephen King. It's all funded by donors. So we would greatly appreciate your support. Head to nowplayingpodcast.com, click the banner at the top, because it's donations like those from you that allow us to do bonus shows like... Willow. Yes, Willow. It's too perfect, right? The fact that Warwick Davis did a Lord of the Rings kind of fantasy right after the whole Star Wars thing, right? This is his next gig, I think. Yeah, 88. Return of the Jedi was 83. I can't imagine he had too much in between. <laughs> and of course, this is sort of the encore for Howard the Duck as well. Arnie, you being the frenemy of that whole thing. <laughs> Not a recommend, but now he has half the props. Yeah, his favorite, least favorite movie. And I'm considering an eggshell tattoo. Oh, jeez. 
Listen, I said it's a movie I couldn't recommend for others, but that I loved. But you're going to get it tattooed on you. Okay. (laughs) I just wouldn't recommend you watch it, but what can I say? It's my ultimate guilty pleasure. Yeah, we are slowly doing all of the post-Star Wars works of Lucas. Radioland murders anyone? (laughs) (laughs) I never have seen it. I, maybe, (laughs) if we can think of a good reason to do it. But Willow is curious because, yeah, I remember it being built up and hyped to be the next Star Wars, and Star Wars was name-dropped every time it was mentioned, and I can remember I would go to the supermarket and buy Kraft macaroni and cheese, and there would be things that I could cut out of the back of the box to get Willow figures and posters. Did they sell brownie brownies? I don't recall anything other than the macaroni and cheese. (laughs) What I remember most is they had an action figure line. The ads from Star Wars toys, if you've seen with the kids in the backyard playing with their toys, recreating scenes. And I just remember they actually had an ad of kids playing in the backyard and like, Mad Mardigan, I'll win this war for you. (laughs) You know, little kids reciting the lines. I don't remember the toys, but I remember seeing this in the theater. This came out for my 11th birthday, not just for me, but (laughs) on my 11th birthday, this film came out and my dad's like, okay, for your birthday, we're going to see Willow. Hey, it's George Lucas. It's the guy who did Star Wars. And it's Ron Howard. Happy days. You like happy days? I'm like, okay. (laughs) And I'll just say after the film, whether it's a recommend or not, I was more excited to get to my presence after seeing it. (laughs) I actually went to see this opening weekend. I was watching making of documentaries. I was reading about this in Starlog magazine. Yeah, I was all in on Willow because it was George Lucas. And Keep in mind, back then, I still was watching Howard the Duck regularly on VHS, too, (laughs) probably every day after school for some duck titties. Yeah, I was renting a lot of things, and I never made it to theaters for this, but I rented it. There was one visual that I recalled. I remembered everyone turning into pigs, and other than that, I couldn't recall the film, which is strange, because it's remembered as this horrible travesty bomb, right? It's got to be this horrible movie for it to have failed so spectacularly. And yet I couldn't remember anything about it that would give credence to that. And I just think it's a problematic genre, honestly. In the 80s, nobody wanted to see fantasy movies, even though it's arguable that Star Wars is just as much, if not more, a fantasy film than it is a science fiction film. People remember it as a sci-fi story. Whenever they tried to transplant that vibe into other fantasy realms, it always tanked. I mean, Legend and Dark Crystal, Labyrinth, Willow. Even with Lucas's name, they had trouble getting financing for this film. 20th Century Fox backed out. They went to MGM and then MGM started having money troubles. They had serious problems, even with Lucas, getting financing for fantasy. And obviously, everyone who was scared was right. (laughs) Yeah. Anyone that saw Crawl would know why that is, but it's a tough one to go because audiences just seemed allergic to it in that decade. Oddly enough, I think some of those movies have now been rediscovered as classics. I know a lot of people that love Labyrinth and Dark Crystal, and so I'm wondering, as I return to Willow, is can there be a renaissance here? Can this be truly a movie that was unfairly shucked off because it wasn't wanted at the time it was presented, but doesn't deserve the bad rap. That's kind of what I'm hoping when I return from my one viewing, what, 30 years ago almost? And I did try to watch this one time in between. I remember I watched this several times on video, actually, and I just found myself not as enamored with it as I was Howard the Duck as a teenager. (laughs) (laughs) Less sex, uh, yeah, less crude. I can imagine it didn't have the uh, party vibe. But when it came out on video, I was like, 
Willow. I remember that from when I was a kid. Let me rent it. And I watched it with Marjorie, who'd never seen it. And halfway through, we were like, all right, we'll kind of call it a night and never return. This is my first time watching it in full since being able to legally drive. <laughs> yeah, I haven't seen this since it was out on video. My younger brother, he's about three years younger than me, loved this. Loved pretending he was Mad Mardigan. I guess I was just too old. I wasn't having any of it, but I remember watching it a few times on video because he was into it. And the director, Ron Howard, kind of a strange choice for a fantasy epic. It wasn't until I was watching some of the bonus features on the 25th anniversary Blu-ray that it really clicked for me. These guys have a history, Howard and Lucas, American Graffiti. I forgot that Opie Cunningham starred in American Graffiti before he was on Happy Days. Yeah, I should have been on to my dad because he tried to sell me American Graffiti the same way. Richie Cunningham and George Lucas. Uh, I didn't want to <laughs> watch a bunch of teenagers drive cars when I was a kid. <laughs> yeah, definitely not the same appeal. I'll, I'll give you that. I'd forgotten that. But Ron Howard at this point is an established director. Maybe people will always remember him as the uh, ginger from Mayberry, but... I think at this point, he had solid hits under his belt that were fantasy light, splash, cocoon. They tend to involve water and <laughs> comedy, but yeah, he had done some other comedies too, Gung Ho, a Michael Keaton bomb, really, about the Japanese auto industry coming to America. Night Shift, a beloved cult film, also Michael Keaton. I loved, loved, loved Splash when I was 10. Could not get enough of Splash. And it was Cocoon that actually got him this job. Lucas had been developing this. He wrote the original treatment for this even before Star Wars. Like in 72, he was working on Star Wars and did the treatment for Willow. Finally, mid-80s, he's like, there's the tech. Ron Howard was doing his post-production for Cocoon at Industrial Light and Magic. And Lucas is like, all right, Ron, you do this. But there's a lot of behind-the-scenes stuff. I may have mentioned Lucas kind of directed Return of the Jedi. Poor Richard Marquand. There's some footage that came out in the past couple years that show Lucas on set overriding Marquand's decisions on Return of the Jedi. <laughs> really, Marquand was an ineffective person and who's probably going home every night having a drink going, why am I here? At least that's what the footage makes it out to be. Now, Willow, there's a lot less of that. Ron Howard is all over the DVD talking about how he enjoyed this, but he described this as his doctoral work in film shepherded by Professor Lucas. And certainly on all the behind-the-scenes footage, Lucas is right behind Ron Howard. Lucas is working with actors going, no, no, this is how you wave a magic wand. Ron Howard's like, we don't need to shoot that again. And Lucas is like, you need to shoot that again. And Ron's like, okay, we'll shoot it again. So is it directed by Ron Howard? Is it directed by George Lucas? I think Lucas was directing, and then maybe every so often Lucas would want to stay home for the day. Hmm. Well, makes you wonder why he doesn't want credit then on this thing. Really? Have you seen it? <laughs> <laughs> I think Lucas was out of day-to-day -day directing. He wanted to shepherd the whole thing, but if he was on set, he was in charge. And, I mean, from what I see, and it may not have been every day, maybe he just left the grunt work. And, in fact, Ron Howard said during a making of special that aired back when this film came out, that sometimes he didn't feel like the film's director. He felt like Lucasfilm's vice president in charge of shooting. Mm, interesting. He said it back then, like, ah, George is funny. But looking at it after seeing all the behind the scenes stuff I did, I'm like, maybe that's a passive aggressive way of saying I wasn't in control. And Lucas is credited as the story creator here, but he didn't write the screenplay either. There's Bob Dolman who came from SCTV comedy sketch writing, really, and would work with Ron Howard on Far and Away. He's the credited screenplay. It's curious to me why someone that is yeah, so exacting and demanding and, and overreaching would not want to be 
writer and director George Lucas. That's weird. I honestly think he doesn't like to work with actors. <laughs> that does make sense from the things I've heard. And I think that, yeah, it's just the day-to-day grind. He doesn't want an eight to five, but he'll show up and tell you what to do and try to make sure it's his movie without having to put in every hour. I see. All right. He's the HR department. <laughs> you handle the employees, but make them do this. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> very curious. I don't know that much about George Lucas, so that's very curious here. I would like to let know more. Arnie, why don't we get him the plot, and then we can get into the movie. Queen Bavmorda is the evil queen over the realm of Nakmar. And much like Lord of the Rings, I feel like a douche. <laughs> saying all these names. I finally get it, Arnie, because not being familiar with this material, yeah, you do feel douchey writing all these names down. <laughs> It's worse when you're just going to spout them out in a row in a plot summary. <laughs> but a prophecy foretold a child born with a mark on its arm will bring the queen's downfall. So when that child is born, the queen tries to order the baby to its death. But the midwife smuggled the child out and set him afloat down a river. The baby is found by Willow Ufgood, played by Warwick Davis. Willow is a farmer and wants to be a sorcerer of his race of little people called the Nelwins. But devil dogs attack Willow's village, hunting the baby. And so the town decides the baby should be taken and given to the first Dakini, otherwise known as human, they find. <laughs> Oof. Which happens to be Mad Mardigan, played by Val Kilmer. <laughs> and we have to talk about his teeth. When they find Mad Mardigan, he's in a cage, left for dead. But Willow releases the man when he promises to care for the baby. But on his way back to his village, Willow is attacked by a race of Lilliputans, here called Brownies, who have stolen the baby. And they take Willow to the queen of the forest, Sherlindra, who says the baby's name is Alora Danan, and she has chosen Willow as her protector. Willow is given a magic wand and sent to find the sorceress Finn Raziel, and on the quest, Sherlindra sends two brownies, Frangine, played by Rick Overton, and Raoul, played by Kevin Pollock, both sporting terrible French accents and sounding like Pepe Le Pew. The trio come upon Mad Mardigan again, who says the baby was stolen while he was taking a leak, and they go to find the sorceress, who's been transformed into a possum. The group is captured by Sorsha, Queen Vavmorda's daughter, played by Joanne Whaley. Sorsha is initially loyal to her mother, but an attraction to Mad Mardigan makes her change her ways. But the baby is taken by the Queen's soldier, General Kale, so Mad Mardigan and Willow plan an attack on the Queen's stronghold. Willow eventually turns the sorceress human again, and while Mad Mardigan fights, the sorceress confronts the queen. The sorceress is felled, but Willow takes up the fight and hides the baby, telling the queen he sent her into a realm where evil can never touch her. And the queen, distraught, falls on the sacrificial altar where lightning strikes and kills her. With the queen dead, Sorcia and Mad Mardigan are in love and prepare to raise the baby, while Willow returns home to his clan, now a true wizard, as credits roll. Or we could say this whole thing over as... Luke Skywalker finds a baby, teams up with 3PO and R2, finds Han Solo to take him to meet Princess Leia, while the Empress has Darth Vader go try to find the baby. Yeah, even down to Willow Skywalker being a farm boy at the beginning of the film. I was wondering, would we be able to talk about this plot and this story without mentioning Star Wars? Even I, someone that has not seen Star Wars in at least 15 years, could see obvious parallels. Even if I didn't know George Lucas's name was on this thing, I mean, it is just evident from the get-go here. Well, Stuart, according to Ron Howard, these are just Campbellian archetypes that are being brought back. <laughs> I thought that was Lucas's bullshit line to steal stuff. And remember, Howard said he got his doctorate under Professor <laughs> Lucas, his doctorate in bullshit. 
Yes, he certainly is uh, giving us a treatise on that. (laughs) Yeah, it's very evident. And we could point it all out. I know you Star Wars fans definitely could see a million things that I didn't even see. Surprisingly, it took me about halfway through the movie before it just smacked me upside the head with a frying pan. When I realized Raul and Frangine were R2 and 3PO is when it all really hit home. Initially, I kind of thought of Indiana Jones quite a bit, but we'll talk about it. Yeah, this is just missing a Chewie. Now we all think about who it might be. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Gotta wait for the sequel, I guess. But we do get a rancor that looks about as bad as the rancor in Return of the Jedi. Yes, I know what that means, surprisingly (laughs) enough, and will agree with you. Because you've heard my rancor about the rancor. (laughs) Yes, that is true. Uh, When we get there, I I will be clued in. But you could also point out, and I think we should point out, because I think it's what we're supposed to be thinking about, that this is heavily influenced by Tolkien. Middle Earth and the fantasy genre here. That this baby is much like, I guess, the ring or the precious. There's going to be a quest that's put on the littlest, most unassuming person. They're going to have traverse a world full of fairies and dragons and evil creatures and ultimately prove their might and standing within that world here. I I do see Aragorn. I do see Bilbo. I do see a lot of Tolkien in this setup. You could just as much rewrite the proper names in Tolkien terms as you could Star Wars. You see Bilbo, I see the Bible. I mean, come on. We have King Herod. Here it's a queen that wants to kill all the newborn children because there's a prophesied child that's going to take over her kingdom. What archetype do we want to pick to put into this film? They're all there. Well, I think Lucas was really thinking Lord of the Rings because we'll talk about this a little bit more later, but he intended this to be the Hobbit, he had already story treatments for the Lord of the Rings trilogy to follow this. Three movies following up on this one that tell another story of which Willow is only tangentially involved. Yeah, this thing is called Willow. It makes me think that he's the focal point here, like The Hobbit was in that first book. That even though this is really an ensemble, and it's arguable, questionable, really, that the focus is on Warwick Davis's character, I think they made it such because... Well, that's what Tolkien did with The Hobbit. Because, yeah, I thought Willow was the baby. I mean, we, we don't know the name of this child. Uh, women are literally in cages giving birth. <laughs> the midwife does a switchamaroo, runs it out to the river. She's going really fast. She's got like a five-minute head start, and yet she's able, she's tracking through the snow, and yet they still aren't able to get her for like, what, a continent. She gets like across... <laughs> At least half of Middle Earth before she gets killed in the river. Yeah, until these dogs... Uh, Arnie, was there anything in the extras of what these dogs were supposed to be? I was wondering, like, did they put wigs on dogs to get this look? I couldn't tell if they're wolves or warthogs. A lot of them were animatronics, but they did actually find a couple of Rottweilers that would take to wearing the outfits. <laughs> okay, so they were outfits on the dogs. Okay. Yeah, I mean... They were very proud with the technological advancements, though. Some of the ones that you think may be dogs may actually be complete animatronic designs. But no CGI. Wanting to point out to our younger listeners who now totally expect to have all visions created via computer and no worries. This was done in a time where you had to do it all in camera here. Not entirely. This does have computer-generated effects. Where? This movie will have the first morph in history. Oh, well, then you'll have to point that out. I was not aware of that. And this is after ILM had done some of the CGI effects of the stained glass man in Sherlock Holmes. I saw an entire treatise about digital effects and how this film 
is really the one that transitions between digital age and film age and when they really started realizing how much they could do digitally and there was stuff here that they intended to do old school and the programmers were like, no, no, let's do that in the computer. The big key is they didn't do digital compositing, which would change everything because ah. the green screen work here is shoddy. I'm looking at this anytime there's like the brownies on screen. It's bad. I thought it was all rear projection. It looks so awful. Oh, God. You know what it reminded me of is remember when we did our bonus donation series of Army of Darkness and there's all the little ashes running around? Yeah. I now realize Sam Raimi just imitated Willow to a T down to the bad green screening. Oh, come on. I mean, I haven't seen Return of the Jedi since I saw it in theaters, but this is the exact same effects as Endor, right? I mean... No, it's not no. nearly as bad as this. This looks like a step down. I'll have to take your word for it, but in my mind, this was where blue screening was at at the time. I'm going to go ahead and say it. I don't have a major problem with the effects work in this movie. There are certain characters and shots that, yes, aren't very good, and I could look at other fantasy films of the time, like Legend, and say... They were making it look better, but by and large, whatever I have to say negative about this movie, most of it is not directed towards the look of this movie. I actually can buy into this world. And my feeling is the same as it is, honestly, with Return of the Jedi. Lucas is pushing the gas pedal too hard. He said that he couldn't make Willow until the mid to late 80s because technology wasn't ready for it. Sorry, George, you should have waited five more years. <laughs> Around the time of Terminator 2, you could have really pulled this off. But the stop-motion two-headed dragon, the Lilliputan brownies running all around, no, this thing, nobody who's watching Willow for the first time is going to not be drawn out by the bad effects. People who've grown up with this film, you may be like, oh, that's just Willow. But anyone who's not seen this film, I'm just warning you, you're going to have a problem. There are problematic things. And I don't think it's just the effects. I don't know. Maybe it's just the aesthetics of the time. Maybe because I've seen what Jackson has done with Lord of the Rings. When we get to Willow and his village and they're going to this fair, it, it's very Ren fair to me. There's not an authenticity to me. It, it feels like this is what you would imagine something to look like, but not that you're really going for the feel of this fantastical village of little people. No authenticity? First of all, they have over 200 little people there. I get that. I've seen a lot of them in Time Bandits. <laughs> Recognized a lot of face. Tony Cox is here. Tony Cox yeah. is here, also from the Leprechaun series. There's also Phil Fondacaro, who we've discussed recently. And you know who's here but not credited, but I swear to God I saw him and I freeze-framed it. It's him, goddammit. Peter Dinklage! Yeah, he is absolutely <laughs> in the scene where Warwick is doing the pig disappearing trick. He is like, yeah, right there. I'm like, I'm not looking at the pig. I'm like, Dinklage! And he's really making some hammy faces, too. It's not on his resume. When you go on IMDb, he will not claim it. But we see you. There's no hiding. Even R2's here. Kenny Baker, he's playing in that little band. And what about Billy Barty, who is our Bilbo from the animated Lord of the Rings? He's here as a wizard. Yeah, I always liked him. He was the classic little man. I feel like he got all the parts back in the day, and now he's bequeathing it to Warwick Davis here. They had to make him the special guest appearance, right? He's sort of like the Gandalfian leader of this community. He's a charlatan wizard. It's kind of a strange role in that everyone respects him, but maybe they shouldn't. He's Oz. Is that why a wizard's leading this village? Like, you get characters like Burglecut, this big, fat, boisterous, I want to say Hobbit, but Nerwin, Nelwin, whatever these little people are being called in this film. 
I'm like, why would, if you got characters like that, why is a wizard leading everything? He, he's not following that wizard at all. He doesn't like any of his sorcery or his advice. So it's weird that this is a magic-based society. Yeah, but Arnie, you've nailed it. I didn't even occur to me, but obviously when a certain generation thinks about fantasy films with little people in it, Wizard of Oz, of course you'd go to the false prophet. Good call. But by the same token, there is some magic in him. He does have acorns that will turn things to stone, and that's no BS. I never believed it, though, until they do it at the <laughs> climax. But yes, we see him create a bird and say, you're going to go on this quest and take this baby by following the bird. And when the bird goes back to the village, he's like, ah, never mind, follow the river. <laughs> it tells us right away that this guy probably is not as good as everyone else thinks he is. When he's handing him acorns, I'm thinking that's like, you know, the ruby slippers or something that they will probably work. They're supposed to turn things into stone, but not the way that they're supposed to. That it, it will be his belief in them that will get him out of the situation more than them actually having magic properties. I was the same way. I thought that they were just magic beans, a totem to make him feel more confident. The whole thing is Willow lacks confidence. He asks which finger holds the magic. Willow's supposed to hold up his own, but he didn't have the confidence in himself. And should he? Because Warwick Davis has not starred in a movie showing his face before. And <laughs> I've got to say, I like him. Covering Leprechaun, I would say that he is an asset to whatever is going well in that series. But here, he's pretty green. I feel like he's charming and likable, but when he has to carry these dramatic scenes, when he has to say goodbye to his wife and kids, when we have to see that doubt and dramatic expressions, I don't know that you should have hung the movie on this character. I really feel like he's not good enough to carry the entire film. He seems really whiny, especially early on, which I guess goes with the Luke Skywalker archetype. He's always whining, I don't want this baby, this daikini baby. He wants to shun all this, and he's just kind of concerned with his magic. I don't know. Early on, I don't buy into this character. I, I don't care about his journey. I think he gets a little better as the journey goes on, and he gets more confidence, but early on, he's just whiny to me. I agree with you, Stuart. What's funny is, it was the relationship George struck with Warwick on Return of the Jedi that made George think about bringing this back out, dusting it off, and moving forward with it. And he, when he wrote the actual story that was made into a movie... He wrote it with Warwick in mind and said, you're going to be the star of this. Mm. I think that is a fatal flaw of this. Now, I looked it up because in this movie, Willow is married. He's got some kids that are, I'd say, six or so. I mean, they're able to talk intelligently and act normal and, you know, they're not crawling. They're certainly not toddlers. But I looked it up because I'm like, Warwick was a really young kid on Return of the Jedi. This is just five years later. Yeah. He's 18 at the time of filming. Mm. So he is not as old as his character should be. And I think some of that lack of emotional maturity shows through during the dramatic scenes. And by the time Warwick gets to be in Leprechaun, he's actually a married man. He will have had a failed attempt at a child. I mean, there's a lot of drama in his life he can call on here. He's a teenager who's been in a few movies. And yeah, he's not very good in this. And he is the lead character. It's it's his movie. It's named Willow. And he doesn't even get top billing is what I find funny. You know, Val Kilmer gets the top billing, but it's still Warwick's movie. So I think your review is the same as the special effects. Give him a couple years and he would have been great, but it's just not there yet. That's my feeling too, is that I like him. He's fun. Your eyes are drawn to him. He's a star for sure. But yeah, I just, I'm not feeling the emotions of him leaving. When the Hobbits are leaving and the Tolkien works, 
you really are looking forward to that emotional growth of seeing a homebody grow and become an, a worldly adventurer. Here, I'm not really sure what he's going to become. I mean, the plan is to just hand the baby off to the first human they see. I mean, it's not to find the right one or to make a choice or use your head or anything. It's like, literally, walk until you meet a large person, a dakini is what they call us, and then when you see him, just hand off the baby. Yeah, just go to the crossroads. It, I don't know, it's a day's journey. That's the problem. This, it's not set up as an epic. It's take the baby and ditch her when you see someone. <laughs> yeah, of course, this is not Willow's plan. Willow, Willow didn't want the baby at all. Well, he starts off saying he doesn't want the baby and then tells the family nobody's to fall in love with this child, but he's the one who does. And so he's not so game for giving it to the first human. He wants to find the right ones, but it's decreed by the wizard that they just give it to the first human and get rid of it. But no, Willow, he has more connection to this baby than anybody else. I find that weird because, yeah, he's asked. Do you have any love for this child by the sorcerer when they're at the city council to figure out what to do? He's like, yes. I'm like, really? You've wanted to ditch the baby. Why do you have love for the child now? You might want to get rid of it so wolves don't eat your family. But love? Well, because this has got a really photogenic baby here. I mean, this is Gerber material here. Yes. Every insert shot of the baby reacting. Baby's a better actor than Warwick. I'll just say it. Or anyone in this movie. I hate it when movies cut to the baby. And the dog. I find that so whorish. <laughs> and here, I'm like, aww. Yeah, the fact that the Olsen twins became multi-millionaires. No, this kid should have been the rich one. She's adorable. Yeah, very good performance here. We're getting out of the baby. <laughs> I can get it as much as I need to. They fooled me here. I think the Hobbit, you know, I'm in that mindset. They send some other of his kind to go with him. I think that this is going to be a trek for all of them. I didn't remember it that way. I thought it was Warwick on his own with Val Kilmer later, but there's a merry band following him behind of mismatched people. Especially Tony Cox being one of them. I mean, Tony Cox has been in so much from Safety Dance to Return of the Jedi to Bad Santa <laughs> to Leprechaun 2 in a weird, weird scene that I really hope everyone gets to hear us talk about. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> but he's in here, and I'm like, if he's going to be along for the ride, I'm game for that. I really like the performances Tony Cox gives. In not speaking role, it should be called out. Not much of a performance. It's handled in montage. The baby spits up on them. They hide in the bushes from some guards. They have a campfire meal, and then they're there, and they see Val Kilmer in a cage. <laughs> Where he probably should be to this day, from what I hear. <laughs> yeah, he may not fit in one now, but yes. He's lost the weight. <laughs> yeah, but he's lost his mind. I hear he's playing <laughs> Mark Twain or something. He is. I actually met the man not <laughs> a couple years ago. He's weird. Val Kilmer, yeah, we've already discussed his quirks as an actor and as a human being <laughs> when we covered him in uh, Batman Forever. And, you know, he's going to be the rascal here. He is the reluctant anti-hero. We're meant to not like him at first with the rotten teeth. And, I mean, there's a reason why he's been put in jail, and it's because he's selfish. Those teeth, I saw him, I'm like, oh my god, those teeth. Is he going to have those teeth the whole movie? He's using some whitening strips or something during, because by the end of this, he has like got this gleaming smile. I do not know how his teeth reverse rot in this movie, <laughs> but scene by scene, his teeth get less groungy. They are quite large. I gotta say though, Val Kilmer, not a big fan of his, and he's fun in a few films. He's fun here. He plays the rogue well. I don't dislike him right away. I, I know we're supposed to. We're supposed to be suspect, but he's got a charm that I enjoy. I like Val Kilmer a lot. All right, rephrase. 
I used to like Val Kilmer a lot. I really did in the 80s and early 90s, The Door, Willow, Top Gun. Real Genius was the movie that turned me on to him. I mean, just loved, loved, loved Real Genius. But here, when I realized this was a Star Wars movie, he's obviously the Han Solo, right? Yes. But what I thought when I'm watching this and in the early scenes and for like the first hour... I think Lucas is remaking his other trilogy, I refuse to believe there's a fourth film, Indiana Jones. <laughs> yeah, he's Harrison Ford. You yeah. call him Han Solo or you call him Indiana Jones, but that is a character that to me is very, very similar because of the actor that played him. It's the reason why I think everyone loves Harrison Ford is he's played those two roles. And, and there's just something that you have to begrudgingly love about him. It's a unique quality because as Harrison Ford is aged, his likability has left him. Much like Val Kilmer. <laughs> but I don't think Harrison Ford's crazy. <laughs> yeah. In a different way. But yeah, the rascal charm of it, the fact that you enjoy him being a bastard, was true in his prime. And I feel like Kilmer is chasing it. I feel like he gets there about halfway. I don't like him as much as anything Harrison Ford did in his prime, but I get what they're going after here. And I think he's as good as his material. He's actually not as good as his material. He refused to stay on script. Almost every word is ad-libbed. Oh, okay. (laughs) So he's as good as he is. Yes. Okay. Well, fair (laughs) enough. He may be the best part of this film, so perhaps that's a good thing he went off script. I wouldn't have given him a baby. I can say (laughs) I understand. Yes. Well, come on. Willow wanted to give like an army a baby, like this giant, like 300 person army goes marching by. He's like, hello, anyone want a baby? (laughs) Well, hey, those guys are upstanding citizens, you know? They're going to war. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. He thinks that the baby has better odds going into combat with orcs or whatever the hell they're going to be than leaving it with Val Kilmer. That is a damning summation of what he thinks Val Kilmer is. Well, Val Kilmer's being a little amusing in these scenes, too, with his pleading for water and things. I'm actually finding myself amused by this introduction. And I know it's Val Kilmer. I know it's Mad Mardigan. And I have some memories of this movie. So I know he's not the bad guy. But when you see him chained up there begging for water and pulling a scam and trying to choke Willow and calling him Peck, I mean, he's nice and rascally. I could see why you wouldn't give him a baby, yes. Where is this army going? Does it matter? Are they going to fight the evil queen? Yes. I heard some weird words that Arnie hates saying in plot summaries. Galadorn, yes. (laughs) Yes. Galadorn was attacked by a man named Kale. He's as bad as the vegetable. Uh, (laughs) He's got a cool skeleton mask. That's about it. (laughs) That's all we really know. He's played by a stunt man who rarely shows his face, but is physically imposing. And he is returning from that battle. His next assignment is to get this baby with the evil queen's daughter. And apparently the battle to which these warriors are going does not go well, as later that guy comes back and tells Mad Mart again, I may have saved your life by leaving you in that cage. We lost hundreds of men. Yeah, Eric, who's going to become a, like, character later on that we're supposed to remember. Who acts almost as bad as Willow. I remember him because I've seen him before. He was the guy that got drunk with Richard Pryor in Superman 3. Oh, okay. And he was the guy brainwashed and Never Say Never Again, of that weird off Sean Connery comes back Bond movie. And this is why we don't do golden headphones anymore, because this guy would have them. <laughs> it's true. He doesn't deserve it. He's not very good. He seems very not of the period. Almost everyone else is English or kind of doing some kind of Game of Thrones dialect. 
But this guy, like, feels like he just rolled off of a pickup truck from Texas. Yeah, he really, he doesn't have the dialect. He doesn't have much in the way of line readings. I never get emotion from him. They really, in that supporting role, needed somebody who could bring the pathos of having lost men in battle. Here, I think he's thinking about the next wave he can surf. Yeah. <laughs> you need a Billy D. He's no Billy D. But he's the one that explains why Kilmer is in the cage, that he was at one time part of the same men, and... He just was so selfish that they had to get rid of him. He's been left for death, really. And it's only because these little characters don't want to have the baby anymore that I think it peer pressures Willow into giving him the baby. He's convinced himself that, okay, if I set you free and give you the baby, I've done my duty. I can return to my family. I do love when Mad Marty can ask if there's any milk in the little uh, cantina. And it's like, that's for the baby. Again, I like his roguish qualities. But why would you leave a baby with him? I guess because you want to go home to your family. There's this threat. It doesn't pay off. But Burglecut keeps saying, you're wasting your time. You, you, like, Willow's about to lose his farm. He's got to get his crops planted before the winter. Like, that's why Willow's trying to hurry and do this. He needs to get back to his family. He needs to save the farm. That's never going to come up by the end of this, whether he saved his farm or not. But, yeah, that's why he ultimately just leaves the baby there, I guess. Right. And then through a act of strange serendipity, before they get back home, a bird flies by yes. with the baby and introducing new characters. Ugh. Now we're going to get smaller characters than Willow. <laughs> yeah, I was thinking about this. Having a lot of little people playing a race made me think of is how it's kind of taken away the jobs of little people that Peter Jackson can just do camera fakery, right? And make people look little. And then I'm like, when they bring in the even littler people, it suddenly <laughs> changes everything. It's like they could have done it. It wouldn't have looked very good back then, but they could have done this the whole three sizes. But we get these brownies. And yeah, I was, again, right back at Army of Darkness. Anyone who's seen Army of Darkness has seen this scene down to where the heroes are tied down by ropes and then try to stomp on the people. Raimi ripped this off. And there's been some sketchy comedy in this film, but this is where I feel like it tries to go full comedy. I guess this is where it's trying to amuse like the six-year-olds in the audience because, yeah, these brownies, they are just there for comedic relief. Excuse me? But I'm starting to see an influence I don't like. And yes, I feel like, okay, we haven't reviewed Star Wars. We may never review Star Wars, but Ewoks. Everyone knows that that was a big <laughs> point of contention. That that was Lucas overstepping his bounds and trying to do something that was just too teddy bear cute. And here, this is the exact moment where I start to turn on this film. Because up to this point, even though I am fantasy challenged and don't tend to like them, I am okay with this movie. I'm buying into the setup. I think it's visually appealing enough. I think everything is good enough to give it a go and to invest in the story that they're given, flaws and all. But when I realized that not only are we getting these brownies, but they're not just a pit stop on the way, they're going to be like the C-3PO and R2 that are always going to be chattering in the background. I don't want these in every scene. You can get away with a scene with these brownies, but Lucas and Ron Howard seems to think that we'd want this joke again and again and again. Oh boy. This is not the Jar Jar. This is not the Ewoks. <laughs> this is the R2 and the 3PO. I mean, these are the characters out of Hidden Fortress that Lucas likes to invoke again and again. And I thought this would be the moment I turned on the film. because Not because of the brownies, although them going along does seem needless. They seem really useless. And in fact, I would like someone to tell me 
what they do positively in the climax of this film. Did they ever make you laugh? Did you once smile at anything they ever did? I smiled ruefully because I couldn't believe in his entire career that Kevin Pollack had ever played something so embarrassing. <laughs> I mean, this makes that movie where he's trapped in a basement with Jamie Lee Curtis look avant-garde. <laughs> House arrest. I may have laughed a couple of times when I saw this at 11. I'm not laughing now. Yeah, it jumps on my nerves. It's it's just something I don't like, and it's something that I would accept in small doses as well. This is for the kids. This is for the amusement. But after this, there's nothing not for the kids. I feel like all the darkness of this picture, you know, it started with pregnant women in cages going to get butchered. And like, we've moved so far away from that darkness from this point on. Almost every scene is about having some animal do a, you know, spit take. I'll tell you, though, it kept me going for a little while longer. Because when Willow finds the brownies, Mad Mardigan is left and the brownies stole the baby because according to this fairy, and this fairy is what I thought was going to make me turn on the movie. Oh, it made me turn because I didn't understand it. It's just blah, blah, blah coming out. Magic words and magic names. It really is. I am Galadriel, the magical creature that will explain all exposition. The fact that she's a magical creature who's going to give Willow this wand to go find another magical creature. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'm glad you had that problem, too. I'm like, if you're so enchanting, you should be able to handle all of this. We don't need another quest. The quest was to get the baby to a parent, not to find some sorceress somewhere who's going to handle the problem. Perhaps that could have been the story if the baby would have chosen the fairy to go find the sorceress. But no, she chooses Willow. Why are you listening to a baby? They're not very smart. <laughs> Parents, do not let your infants dictate your lives. Obviously, neither of you have ever even babysat because that's exactly how it goes. Anything to stop the crying. <laughs> this baby doesn't cry, though, unless evil people are around. She's a good kid. But... They go on this thing with the brownies. They go to a next town where they find Mad Mardigan in drag. Yeah, because that's funny. Which, again, I think would make me turn on the movie. <laughs> He's adjusting his fake boobs. But then they get into this really cool carriage chase. It's reminding me of the truck chase from Raiders or perhaps from Last Crusade where Indy's crawling on the outside of the moving vehicle. Here we got Mad Mardigan crawling and Willow's trying to get to the bridle of the horses that are running i mean enough is going on in the plot to make me not like the movie but when we get to this action it's not as good as indiana jones it really isn't it's temple of doom it's not raiders it is to temple of doom what temple of doom is to raiders how about that all right fair enough yeah <laughs> it is a more over the top almost parody of itself and yeah it's not as good as it should be but it's not bad and i am enjoying it when the movie started to dip you know, if we're judging the graph of my enjoyment, it dipped around Fairyland, it stayed low during the drag scenes, but then it came back up with a decent action scene. And I'm like, you know, even though this is a fantasy film and I'm fantasy challenged, maybe Lord of the Rings has softened me. Maybe this is for people who grew up in Lord of the Rings. And now that I've been reliving all these Lord of the Rings things, I'm more accepting of just a fantasy environment. And I'm going to go with this. If you give me some good action in the middle of it, I can have a good time. I don't know if you're more accepting of fantasy, because all the fantasy elements you don't like. You don't like the brownies. You don't like the fairies. You're going for the stuff that reminds you of Indiana Jones, a non-fantasy. 
But I agree with you. Uh, throw Val Kilmer in an action scene. I'm enjoying this more than watching little, little people try to do jokes. Yeah, the problem is that I would want to see Willow do something here, and I do feel like the movie is getting further and further away out of Warwick's grasp, that he is going to eventually go it alone, that for a while they humor each other, right? Like, Val Kilmer pretends to not want to be at his side, but he's been charmed by the baby too, and they're all heading to this magical island where this sorceress is going to, what, create a doorway to some good parents, because no one here... (laughs) can friggin' raise a baby, but yeah, at some point, it's for Willow to go it alone, much like Lord of the Rings in the ring, Frodo's gotta be the one to walk it there and to do it, he was chosen, he's gotta prove himself, this has gotta be a story about little people proving their worth in a big world, and I feel like he's getting smaller and smaller by the minute. Yeah, the fact that all he's gotta do is row a boat to a little island, (laughs) like that's his task. There was a lot, lot more to this. There is a huge deleted scene where there was a fish boy. Like part fish, part boy? Like a boy who turns into a giant piranha fish. But man, that shark from Jaws was downright lifelike compared to this <laughs> animatronic. And they just cut the whole thing. It's hysterical to see this wooden fish attack Warwick Davis on the water. I mean, they spent weeks filming it. Warwick, who can't swim, is like drowning oh. and people are saving him. It's all on the cutting room floor. Uh, I would like to see those deleted scenes. That is funny. But uh, yeah, obviously you can't put that in the movie. It's too bad that that was his solo journey because we need that as far as story goes, as far as investing in this character, Willow, who we're told is the most important character in this. We needed to have him have a moment with us. But yeah, it's becoming the Val show. He eventually brings the troops that collect all of them. They all become prisoners. To Sorsha. We haven't really discussed Sorsha. Initially, Mad Mardigan hates her, talks about breaking her leg, which I thought was actually really violent. (laughs) In this movie, with the brownies and everything, discussing breaking a woman's leg, that's a little off script there, Val. Well, the leg did kick him in the face. To be fair, she's tough. You know, we haven't seen the soft side of her yet. She is going to wear a nightie and let her hair down eventually. But up to this point, she's been perceived as just as ruthless as her mother and as Kale. So I get it. But we all know where this is headed, right? I mean, even if you didn't know that that was Joanne Wally Kilmer, Val Kilmer's real life wife. First wife. Yes, exactly. (laughs) At this point, he probably would kick her, but uh, yeah, they have separated. But uh, at this point, were they married? No, they met on the set and were married soon after. So if you believe their romance, it's real. And if you don't, well, then it's still real. (laughs) Then it explains all this tension. Yes. Well, come on. It is aided by brownie magic dust. Is that the only reason, I guess, in the film, maybe in real life, they had real chemistry, but in the film, I thought, yeah, he would be attractive. She seems like an attractive woman in the 80s kind of way with that big hair, but (laughs) he's prompted, I guess, because of the magic brownie love potion dust that he gets on him. I think it helps him get over the hump. When he's in drag, he can barely hide his amazement at the sight of her, but uh, you know that thin line between love and hate. He would hold on to the, oh, I hate her, I hate her, I hate her and not cop to, oh, she makes me feel funny inside. Uh, You know, we get it. And that's fun. We've seen it with Princess Leia and Han Solo, dare I bring that up, or Indiana Jones and some of his conquests, Kate Capshaw. Yeah, here it's a little different because he comes to believe it when he's under the brownie dust and a love potion. And then when the love potion wears off, it, like, makes him question himself. Like, do I feel that? And... 
more, why does she feel that? Well, he is naked or barely clothed for part of this. I think that it's a physical attraction on both ends. They don't obviously know each other as people, but uh, they're superficial, okay? You know, she's been locked up in an evil castle for who knows how long, and this is the first man flesh she's had the eyes for that isn't covered in skulls or what have you. (laughs) Yeah, it does seem forced. I don't know why she goes for him. I know that's going to be important because she's going to change sides because of Mad Mardigan, but I don't know why. Because that's what happens in fantasy films? Yes, it's not very organic, but it's something very familiar, and I would be enjoying it a lot more if it were done with more panache. I don't know if it's Ron Howard or George Lucas behind Ron Howard, but I feel like this movie is trying to relive the glory days of Indiana Jones and Star Wars, but it is labored. It is covered in a lot of sweat. It's working really hard to get a third of the chemistry that seems so effortless in their best work. Yeah, here's the point in the film where I really started to check out. And there's one thing that I can say kept bringing me back in, though, and that's James Horner's score. The script is waning. My interest in the characters is going down. But that score, whenever it swells, all of a sudden I'm brought back in a little bit. I honestly think that the legacy of this film maybe is more due to James Horner than Ron Howard Warwick Davis, Val Kilmer, and George Lucas combined. It's a good score. It did remind me of Jerry Goldsmith and John Williams. I mean, I think that he has been directed, like everyone else here, to fulfill the vision of one who's higher up on the chain. But yeah, a really good recreation of, yeah, the Indiana Jones theme or or some of the more popular Spielberg themes. And the one thing I remember about this film was this fight in the snow and I guess sleds sliding down on shields. I I remember it being a lot cooler. It wasn't as cool as I thought it was. But yeah, the music works. It's a pretty exciting scene as they're sledding around and Mad Mardigan's flipping his sword around. I mean, he's calling himself a master swordsman. We really get to see it here when he's swinging that sword. And just behind the scenes of interest, all filmed in New Zealand. Okay. (laughs) Land of the Hobbits. More of a Lord of the Rings, yeah, tie. A beautiful country, Uh, yes. I wish they could take it a little more seriously. What I start to resent, and it started with the brownies, and it continues here when Val Kilmer is literally rolling downhill in a giant snowball with, like, his feet sticking out. It's like they just, they're playing to the five-year-olds here. They really are not leaving much. I guess that's what the romance is supposed to be doing. For the older people, we're supposed to be enjoying the sparring of the man and the woman that secretly love each other but are on opposite sides. But that isn't really working for me. And all the rest of this, it feels like clowning. I wish that the action were better. We're really losing focus, is my feeling. Once they got the group together and they're captured by Sorsha and they're escaping from Sorsha and all of this, it's like, what is exactly their plot at this point? They're trying to find the ferret? (laughs) Rizal has been changed into a ferret. Willow's supposed to do a magical chant to change her into an old woman. Now they're going to go to a castle. I don't even know why they're going to this castle. I was confused. I did not know that Willow wanted to be a sorcerer. They set up early. I know that it was there that he wanted to be picked as an apprentice to Billy Barty and that there was something there about magic. But since I didn't believe he was a real magician, I didn't really ever see Willow learning real magic. So this whole thing about he's going to have the wand and he's going to have to learn spells and that Anytime we see him, he's basically got to just chant mumbo-jumbo the right way, or it turns the ferret into a goat, 
or a bird or whatever. Willow! Yeah. <laughs> yeah. To me, that wasn't the right thing to give him to do. I, I didn't think that that was his character. What's really weird is, okay, so we're supposed to have real magic going on. He's really using this wand. But when we see him, when he wants to become an apprentice at the beginning, he's doing a little magic show. It's basic magic illusions. It's not real magic. Sleight of hand. Yeah, a trick. Yeah, and at the end, when he does his magic, it's going to be sleight of hand. It's weird that all of a sudden he's really believing in magic. I don't know. You want to be the apprentice at the beginning? Uh, maybe just so you can have your own magic show one day. It's weird that all of a sudden there's real magic involved, too. That he never seems to master. Yeah, I agree. That is a, a strange thing to give someone that... Ultimately, he'll fall back on the tricks that he already knew before he went on the journey. And that's the confidence bit. Don't you get it? He had confidence to not use real magic and use his own tricks. Confidence that his tricks are enough. All right. Well, yeah, I'm not (laughs) loving this either. The fact that he's trying to play around with a magic wand just seems overly dangerous. It ends up with him in a tree. But yeah, at this point... The MacGuffin is no longer the baby. The baby was the MacGuffin. Now the MacGuffin is the wizard or the sorceress. And it's just really, the movie has lost focus. It's like they realize this can't be a 90-minute film. They're trying to shove all three Star Wars films into one, and yet they're going on these crazy diversions. Right. You're right, Jacob. When we finally get to a castle, I thought it was just so they had a place where they could pick up armor. Val Kilmer gets suited up in a, well, actually, it looked kind of crappy, but it was supposed (laughs) to look cool. He's got his armor on. But they're supposed to know people here. Like, we see one dude that I guess is, like, frozen or turned to stone or something. I never got the sense that this was a full-functioning castle. But, yeah, I never know why they go there. And maybe they drop some line. And it's weird because initially I remember being excited by the Army of Thousands. When they see that troop walking by, I'm like, oh, they got extras here. This is a full-fledged epic. And then, yeah, slowly but surely, this besieging of the castle feels like it's Val Kilmer rigging a bunch of booby traps. Suddenly it's Home Alone or something. And (laughs) Mud Buckets and and Rube Goldbergs. I couldn't believe this wasn't the climax, because my memory of this film was an epic battle at a castle with a two-headed dragon. That was one of two memories I had of this movie. And I'm like, that has to be the climax when you bring out the two-headed dragon, right? So that this isn't anything but a stalling tactic is <laughs> yes. really weird. And that two-headed dragon, I felt really, really bad. Because behind the scenes, Ron Howard said he tried to get his brother Clint into every movie of his. There was no role for Clint in this. So he told the people, make the dragon heads look like Clint Howard. <laughs> <laughs> Here's the other thing about those dragons. I don't know what George Lucas has against critics, but I guess General Kale... That was a play on one critic whose last name was Kale. Pauline Kale. Yeah. Yes. And I was reading this just Wikipedia knowledge, but I guess in the book, that monster is called like Sisep to be Siskel and Ebert as a slight to them, I guess. I, I don't know. What did they do to piss off George? I, I guess Howard the Duck? Wait for episode seven. After Howard the Duck, Jakarn <laughs> Stew is going to be there. <laughs> you think? Well, maybe. But uh, yeah, it's something we've seen Rob Zombie do. It, it, you know, artists like to have the revenge on critics that they feel have slighted them in the past. Pauline Kale can be merciless. I'm sure she said some horrible things about Star Wars. No doubt about it. She was definitely someone that hated populist entertainment and championed underdog films. So yes, he's got axes to grind here. 
that he wants to say that this is his attack on Siskel and Ebert. Well, Siskel and Ebert win because this thing looks like ass. <laughs> yeah, I remember at 11 years old watching this scene and just being like, nope, not buying it. This is not working. This was the Rancor, right? This is what you were talking about. Yeah. Yes, this is the Rancor. And you got... Or the Dark Overlord. Just going to put that out there. <laughs> Lest we forget Howard the Duck. Yes. <laughs> yeah, or 2001 A Space Odyssey. We have oh. the monkey men come in as these trolls now. I don't know what that is. These monkey men look far, far worse than 2001. I'm just going <laughs> to yes, go out there and say. I don't even know why we need them. They're like <laughs> trolls that, what does a troll have in this fight? This is supposed to be about the Queen's army trying to get the baby. There's a line early on, one of Willow's kids like says, oh, maybe there will be trolls to rip off your skin. I, I think it's supposed to make Willow grow and confront one of his fears. And I was just thinking about the trolls we saw in the Hobbit movies we just reviewed. I'm like, these aren't trolls. They aren't trolls. Yeah. I don't know what these are. But yeah, these aren't successful. They kind of climb on the walls. That might be a little bit fun, but I don't know. They kind of look like winged monkeys. Again, back to Oz. Yeah. But we're complaining about the effects. It's very soon after this pointless battle that we get to an effect that would change Hollywood forever, the morph. (laughs) Where was it? Was it uh, the goat? It is when the goat turns into the ostrich, turns into the tiger, turns Uh into the woman. That is the world's first morph. The morph technology was designed for this film. Inspired Michael Jackson. This is it. Yeah, it was the entire software created by ILM for this because initially they were going to do it like American Werewolf and just keep cutting away and have all these prosthetics and manimal it. And the ILM guys are like, no, we can do this in one shot. And it took them nine months and the first digital morph right there. Oh, see, I thought it was very good fading and and superimposition. It's a good effect. (laughs) They did a good job with what they had. I didn't think there was CGI work in this movie, so... It wasn't so CGI that it stood out to me. It's subtle, I guess, is what I'm saying. What's funny is I remember when this movie came out, like everybody was talking about that transmutation. And I remember being in theaters like, and, you know, I didn't, I was unimpressed by it. It took nine months to render, Arnie. (laughs) Yeah, I'm sure behind the scenes, it was quite a feat. And yeah, we probably do owe Terminator 2 and Jurassic Park and all of that to this. But uh, let me just say it got better. (laughs) Yeah, black or white the video. Star Trek The Undiscovered Country, yeah, all because of this. (laughs) (laughs) And it's probably the high point in a completely unfulfilling climax. Yeah, my interest is completely waned. I Honestly, I can see why you turned this off back when you were trying to relive your childhood here. The novelty is worn out. I was kind of enjoying the beginning of this, even though I never thought it was particularly great or memorable or stood on its own as a unique fantasy. I was like, for a rehash, mishmash, what have you, I was having a good time, but the buzz is over, and now I've got the hangover, and we've still got 25 more minutes. There's nothing in this ending that's good. I hate to say it that way, but it's really true. I do love when the two old ladies start beating each other up, like just go fisticuffs, yeah. I knew you would just that, yeah, particularly when she literally punches her in the face. Forget this magic stuff, we're just gonna punch each other. It's almost like a bum fight or something here. It yeah. really wrong. When they do it in Lord of the Rings, when it's the two wizards, I totally go for it, but here, it's, for unintentional comedy, it might work for you for a little bit. Yeah, but Val Kilmer's running around doing sword fights that are completely unenthralling. Very. The whole Darth Vader masked creature with the skull mask here was not 
properly evil enough. My biggest problem is when he takes that mask off. He said it was a stunt man. Yeah, it's I want something scary and it's no, keep the mask on. And there's an entire cut subplot about Sorsha's father. I think at the end he should have taken it off and been like, Sorsha, I am your father. You know, <laughs> you think he should have done that, huh? I don't know. I don't think they could get away with that. I don't know. You get General Kale and Mad Mardigan. That doesn't seem like a rivalry that was really built up. So I I don't care. No, it wasn't their movie. Yeah. I mean, again, Val Kilmer is not the lead. Even though we were saying Han Solo, Indiana Jones, I feel like the all the character stuff was supposed to be going to Willow. Oh, no, but that is Han Solo. All the character stuff went to Luke Skywalker. And what does Han Solo get left to do? You know, here it makes sense to me that you have the strong, good fighters team up while Willow goes off to do a magic fight. I think it's a good pairing that just if Kale was built up more to be more evil, if we'd seen him, God help me. I'm sitting here on certain Lord of the Rings podcasts you have to donate to find out which ones saying you should cut a movie out of this series. Here, I'm almost thinking if they'd made this two movies, you could have had more to set up Kale as a bad villain who we want to see killed. You know, set him up as a Darth Vader who's blown up a planet. Show us the destruction of that village and the death of hundreds of soldiers by his hand, and then I'll fear him. Yeah, he needed to be coming back with severed heads or something. We didn't even need to see the battle, just what he was capable of doing. And I think part of the problem is, okay, Willow, that's our title character. This final fight versus the evil queen, that's mostly the queen versus Roselle, the sorceress. He just steps in at the end. Oh, but that's Vader versus Obi-Wan. And of course she's going to fall. I knew this. She is Obi-Wan. I'm surprised she lived. I thought for sure she was dead. And then Willow would yell, no, and then have to stand <laughs> up and do something. What I'm saying is let Willow take out Kale and then come save the day. Give him something more to do than hide a baby like he does a pig. Not Kale. Kale needed to be Val Kilmer's kill. I mean, he killed his friend Eric or whatever they were. You cared about Eric? No, but (laughs) if these relationships were good, we would want Val Kilmer to get vengeance on his fallen friend by killing the man that put him down. Yeah, give him the Darth Vader character. The problem is, yeah, what is there for Willow to do? Even now, when I look at what they've written for him, he's going to do his old pig trick to distract the evil queen until the good wizard woman can, what, trick her with more lightning bolt. There's so much magic being thrown around here at the end. Yeah, I don't even understand how the queen is defeated. She, like, spills some ritual blood on her and gets struck by lightning and disappears. This spell is, like, 48 hours long. I mean, she's been doing it for days. It's raining inside. There's blood all over the place. I'm like, how long does it take to kill a baby? (laughs) Well, they have to banish her soul so that soul can't inhabit another baby. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> yeah, it seems a little silly. And the fact that Willow doesn't actually take out the sorceress, that she just is accidentally struck by lightning. Sure, you may not want to make Willow a killer, but by the same token, here, he just does his disappearing pig trick. And he came up with the plot that got him in through the door. I don't forget that because he's a farmer... He knew the the whole dig a hole and they'll run past you trick. I mean, they're really stretching here to make Willow the star of this movie. Yeah, come on. He's like, have you heard of gophers? I've dealt with gophers. They don't like wait in their holes for me to come out and and get the mail and then run in my house and take it over. (laughs) They just dig holes. Yeah, I know gophers, but I've never been at war with them. (laughs) You know what I thought he was going to do since he had just transformed the sorceress and all the warriors had just been transformed into pigs? I thought he was going to transform them all into gophers so that they could dig under the wall 
wall and then transform them back. Then he would have actually been doing something in this climax. Yeah, transforming the pigs. There's just too many animals in this story. I do not understand the need, <laughs> other than to entertain small children, why we keep seeing you know, all of these this animal nonsense. Willow didn't need to play with magic. He needed to prove that being small was an asset, and that does not happen here. It's an asset if you can do magic. It'd be an asset if he could act, but yeah. <laughs> so Jacob Stewart, do you recommend Willow? Jacob. You know, we, we talked a lot about, oh, this would be entertaining if you're a little kid. And little kids will be entertained by just about anything. I don't think this is a film that just goes after small children. I really do think it tries to go for an older audience, so I'm going to judge it at that standard. At 11 years old, I was not impressed by this. Like I said, I went home, I opened my presents, I got a Nintendo that I had waited three years to get. That was super exciting. Made me forget about this movie, thankfully. But watching it now, it's not awful. I I guess if it has this awful reputation, I don't think it deserves that. It's kind of just mediocre. It it starts off all right. Val Kilmer, that's my favorite part of this film, and he kind of gets round out by the end of it because it's not his film it's willow's film but they don't have much for willow to do either it's just i do see parts of all three of the original star wars trilogy in here and yeah i I don't know if i want to watch two parts of this arnie like you called out but they probably should have tried to thin out some of this storyline and streamline it it's a not recommend it's not a strong one though it's it's mild not recommend for me Stewart. Yeah, it's not bad enough is the problem. I was hoping that if it was going to be a bomb, if it was going to have this reputation of really damaging the Lucas brand, it would be as bad as Howard the Duck, a movie that I still stand by as saying was completely horrible and misguided and in a strange mix of very adult risque humor and kiddie stuff. Here, yeah, this just feels like a kiddie movie without the songs. Like, we just needed musical numbers, right? It was That was what was missing. And then we would understand that this was, yeah, Labyrinth or a Disney film. But yeah, it definitely doesn't work for adults. Young audiences, they might like it a little bit, but I honestly think everyone is going to be bored by the end. It just overstays its welcome, and it's just not nearly as much fun as it should be. Even though it's aping movies I like, there's just not enough here to like in Willow. So yeah, mild not recommend. I'm also going to have to give it a mild not recommend. The fun I had in the first hour was, wow, this wasn't as bad as I remembered, and it then became as bad as I'd feared. The second half is really a strong not recommend, and the first half is a recommend, so it averages out to kind of a weaker not recommend. It just isn't enough here, and I'm so glad they didn't go on and make the three sequels that Lucas was envisioning. I don't think that it's a fantasy bias that made this film not successful. I think that it's that this film wasn't very good that made this film not successful. But they did continue that story. Chris Claremont, famed writer of X-Men, in 1995 wrote Shadow Moon, the first of a trilogy, Shadow Dawn and Shadow Star, that continued the story of Willow, and no, I will not be covering them at Books and Nachos, but if anyone out there would like to, I'd like to hear a Books and Nachos about them, I just wouldn't like to read the books. Maybe just wiki the plot summaries for those. <laughs> yeah, I haven't brought into the world enough to care, but I can only imagine it would involve Eleonora, you know, if this baby is prophesied to over supersede this evil queen, well, yeah, what was she going to do? Like, how did that turn out? I guess... There would be mild curiosity for that, but uh, not enough for me to really care. 
Not going to read it. Yeah, my understanding is it's about 15 years after the original film, and Alora is the central character, but yeah. Mad Mardigan and Willow still play a part. Yeah, it would have to be about Alora. She's, in many ways, the star of the film, no matter what the name on the title is. Well, what I can say is, to our listeners... We may not have recommended Willow, and it is always kind of a bummer when we do a bonus show and we do all the planning, and by the time we watch the movie, we're too far in to not release the show. But, (laughs) (laughs) I mean, we kind of did this with Trick or Treat, and now here, it's like, it's bad when we're not loving the movies we're doing as bonuses, but it's not an anti-fantasy bias. If you want to hear fantasy films we do recommend, those are still available for a couple more weeks as our fall donation drive with the Lord of the Rings silver or platinum donation series. There's plenty of green to go around with that silver. That's true. I'm a fan of the Lord of the Rings trilogy and less so The Hobbit, but I'm going to like Battle of the Five Armies a whole lot more after seeing Willow. I can tell you that. (laughs) Whatever my struggles are for Jackson's new trilogy, he can't do any worse than this, right? I got to believe that when we get the review out to you in a couple days for donors, platinum and silver, we're going to have more to talk about there. Yes, so that'll be out next week, as will our review of the next Oceans film. Thank you for joining us. Thank you in advance for your support. It's your donation that keeps us going, keeps us doing bonus shows like these. And so now, our reign of terror is at an end. Thank you for listening to this episode of Now Playing, and we hope you've enjoyed the show. Did we do the right thing? Absolutely. There's nothing to worry about. Come back to NowPlayingPodcast.com each week for another in-depth movie review. The power has enchanted me. I stand helpless against it. We need your help. My help? Huh. What do you need my help for? Your support is what keeps Now Playing operating. Our fall 2014 pledge drive is coming to a close. Support independent podcasting and get exclusive, bonus, Lord of the Rings or Leprechaun movie reviews. Even when we aren't running a pledge drive, you can donate using the PayPal button at our website all year round. Find the PayPal button as well as all the details at our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. It is you that has made this possible. Whatever happens, I shall always admire you. While at NowPlayingPodcast.com, visit our archives, where you can find reviews of other films, such as all the James Bond films, The Avengers, Robocop, Rambo, Die Hard, Saw, and hundreds more. I feel better! (laughs) You've done the right thing! Also from our website is a link to our forums where you can discuss this movie review with other listeners. Excuse me! Are we having a party? (laughs) You can also follow Now Playing on Facebook and Twitter, where we post announcements of new episodes and where the hosts post movie mini-reviews. Links to our social media pages are at nowplayingpodcast.com. Are you suggesting we go home? Nah, this is more fun. All right. Fine then. Come on. Now Playing is edited by Heath and Arnie. These people are crazy! This could be bad! Now Playing credit narration by Brock. The bones have spoken! 
now playing is not affiliated with Lucasfilm, Imagine Entertainment, or Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer. The film Willow is the property of its copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. You always told me you served no one Matt Mardigan. Since when are you a crusader? The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Enganza Media Incorporated. Did I really say those things last night in your tent? You said you loved me. I don't remember that. You lied to me. No, I, I just wasn't myself last night. Now Playing is a Venganza Media production. Copyright 2014. All rights reserved, and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated. Goodbye, Willow! Farewell! Too perfect, right? The fact that Warwick Davis did a Lord of the Rings kind of fantasy right after the whole Star Wars thing, right? This is his next gig, I think. Yeah, 88... Return of the Jedi was 83. I can't imagine he had too much in between. <laughs> Howard the Duck? He was in that? Oh, oh, work. No, no. <laughs> I thought you meant Lucas. <laughs> By a race of Lilliputans here called brownies who have stolen the baby. Somebody's eating some brownies. That's what I gotta say. I wish it were me. <laughs> it wasn't legal in California back then. <laughs> You get characters like Burglecut, the the big, boisterous, fat. I want to say Hobbit, but no, uh, <laughs> Peck. Or what's their what's the non-racist term for their race? Uh, I have it here, the Nelwins. Oh, I hate it. <laughs> <laughs> yes, feel the douche water flow. That's why you want to say Peck. Yeah, I just want to call it a Hobbit and be done with it. Especially Tony Cox being one of them. I mean, Tony Cox has been in so much from Safety Dance to Return of the Jedi to Bad Santa <laughs> to Leprechaun 2 in a weird, weird scene that I really hope everyone gets to hear us talk about. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that damn urinal. <laughs> Do not understand it even to this day. But what was in that urinal that he had to look back? <laughs> I like Val Kilmer a lot. All right, rephrase. I used to like Val Kilmer a lot. I really did in the 80s and early 90s. The Door, Willow, Top Gun. Real Genius was the movie that turned yes. me on to him. I mean, just loved, loved, loved Real Genius. Oh, my God. By the time we got we to know. Doctor <laughs> <laughs> This would be your 90th citation of Real Genius. And we still haven't done a podcast on it. <laughs> and we never will. Well, we also got 13 going on 30 that gets recited every other podcast. Yeah, that'll be the one after that. Can we put that in the same retrospective somehow? <laughs> <laughs> Movies often referenced on now playing retrospective. <laughs> yeah, it's Arnie's silliest go-tos. Yeah, the cover art for that would just be amazing. <laughs> it really would. <laughs> Movies that influenced our life, like Stuart would pick. Orson Welles and something I'd never heard of in a foreign language. Jacob would pick some Aussie punk thing. And I'm like, 13 going on 30 and real genius. Yeah. Let's put that franchise on a bed and push it down the river. I don't, I don't think we really want to raise that. Then they get into this really cool carriage chase. And again, I'm back at Indiana Jones. It's reminding me of the Chuck Chase from Rick. Chuck Chase. <laughs> There's just not enough here to like. 
in Willow. So, yeah, mild recommend. Mild. Oh, <laughs> oh God. <laughs> yeah. Whoops. So, yeah. Whoops. So, yeah, mild not recommend. What the-